Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. For it, meaning the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, not even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Stewardship. It's probably a word that isn't in your vocabulary. In fact, it's probably a word for many of you that you say, I don't even really know what it means. It's a word we don't use often, but it's a word that we experience in everyday life, whether we realize it or not. Every time that if you have children, you hire a babysitter to watch your children while you go on date night, you experience stewardship. Uh, every time you rent a car, you experience it. Every time you borrow somebody's car, you experience it. Every time that you act as a manager, if you're hired as a manager in a store, you experience it. Every time you manage someone's money as a financial advisor, you experience it. Every time you borrow someone's outfit to wear, you experience it. Every time you lend someone your mower, your pressure washer, your tool, whatever it may be, you experience it. Every time you watch somebody's dog while they go away for the weekend, you experience it. Stewardship is a word that appears throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, and it, and it literally means, the word steward in the Bible means manager of a house. It is one of the core foundations to life. It is one of the core foundations of what it means to be a Christian or to follow Christ. 
is this concept of stewardship. Now, why? What exactly is it? Why is it so important? To answer this, we're gonna, we're gonna look at three parts. God owns it all, God gives it all, and we steward it all. So let's start with, first, God owns it all. The context of this parable is absolutely critical. It's set in the context of Jesus' second coming. So Matthew chapter 24 describes Jesus coming back to his world. He says in, in Matthew 24, verses 44 to 45, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? There it is, there's stewardship. And then he goes on to explain this by telling the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. He says in verse 14, for it, meaning the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. The servants don't own the property. The master owns the property. He goes away and he entrusts it to his servants. And Jesus telling this parable is saying, I have, I'm going away. I'm gonna rise from the dead. I'm gonna ascend to heaven, but then I'm gonna come back. But while I'm gone, I'm going to entrust to you my world. The key though and Jesus telling this parable is that Jesus owns everything. It's one of the main points of this parable. Jesus owns everything. God owns everything. Psalm 24, we read it in the call to worship. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything belongs to God. Every piece of clothing at the gap belongs to God. Every Lego block that your child plays with belongs to God. Every bird's nest, every animal, every ounce of toothpaste that you squeezed from the tube this morning to brush your teeth belongs to God. And I hope you did that. Everything belongs to him. Every paycheck, every allowance, every inch of your waist belongs to God. Every lung, every artery, every Krispy Kreme donut Every house, every car, every phone, every computer, everything belongs to God. O ownership is so important to us, isn't it? And we, we, ownership is, is important. I, I remember the, uh, the first car that I ever owned, that I ever could hold the title to. It was a used Toyota Camry, a white Camry with blue interior and a rug dash. In fact, uh, I believe that, that my wife, Kim, fell in love with me because of the rug dash on our first date. Actually, no, it was in spite of that. We have lots of comical conversations about it, but it was my first car. I owned it. I had the title in my hand. I remember the first home that I owned in Matthews, North Carolina. I remember it closing, signing the papers, walking away, walking into this home and saying, it's mine. Well, I had a mortgage, so not totally, but but it's mine. I can, I can change it. I can do projects on it. I can, it's mine. I remember the first cell phone that I owned, an LG flip phone that I splurged for $5 a month to purchase 50 texts per month. 
Some of you do that in one day. And I, and I T9 texted on the keypad. Some of you have no idea what that is. You missed out. But I remember these things, the first big things that I owned. Ownership's important to us. Listen, ownership's really important to God. Really important to God. Because in his world, a lack of understanding of what, who is the rightful owner has led to so much hurt, so much pain, so much brokenness, so much sin in our world. It started in the Garden of Eden when Satan came to Adam and Eve and tempted them. Do you know what his temptation was? It was basically around the question of ownership, the question of authority. That, that Satan twisted things and, and, he, and, he, and he posed Adam and Eve as competitors of God and they believed the lie. He said, is, is God really good? Did he really say that? Can he really be trusted? And Adam and Eve believed the lie and I will tell you, when they took ownership of their lives, forgetting who they belonged to, everything came unraveled, everything. Their marriage went into the tank immediately. Their children began to rebel and struggle, one of them committing murder. Everything came unraveled. And that battle over ownership that started in the garden continues to the scripture, even to Jesus' first coming. We see in Matthew 4, where Jesus is tempted in the desert three times. And in, his, and in the, in the third temptation, listen to what Satan says to Jesus Christ. The Lord of the world, the Lord of the earth who owns everything. Listen to what he said. All these kingdoms, Jesus, all these kingdoms of the world, I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Speaking as if he owned anything. Right? There's a battle over who's the rightful owner, that ownership is important to God. And whether you realize it or not, there's a battle in your own heart over ownership. You may not be conscious of it, but it's there. Who owns everything you have? Who owns your college education? Who owns your athletic career? Who owns your work career? Who owns your children? Who owns your marriage? Who owns all the stuff that you have? The answer that you give to these questions will, will determine whether you live a life of peace and contentment or a life of anxiety and worry. Because if you functionally believe, and I'm saying functionally, not intellectually what you would profess, I mean down functionally at a heart level, if you functionally believe that everything belongs to you, then when things don't go well, you will come undone. But if you believe that everything belongs to God, that he owns it all, when things don't go well, for example, your children struggle mightily, or you, you, you fail to get a promotion at work, or you get fired from work, or you lose your job. Or you fail a test, or you fail a class. When things don't go well, you'll be sad and disappointed, but you won't come undone. Because you understand that God owns everything. 
But not only does he own everything, he gives everything. You see, why is stewardship foundational to life? Well, because the beginning of stewardship is understanding that you don't own anything. But the second point is that God gives everything. Right? Look, at, look at verse 15 of Matthew 25. Says he entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. You see, the, the, the master owned a lot, but he entrusted it to his servants. And the point Jesus is making here is that God owns everything, but he entrusts what belongs to him to you and me. We see this in Psalm chapter eight, verses four to eight. What is man that you're mindful of him, of the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion, listen to this, over the works of your, your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. See, God created a beautiful world. This is describing what is true today. It's describing what is true in the beginning. God creates this beautiful world. I mean, we can't imagine what the garden was like. Unbelievable in beauty, everything. And God says, here's my world. Now go take care of it. Go cultivate it. Go develop it. Look at the, the potential in it. It's just all over the place. Go take care of it. So he says, listen, go, go make a beautiful garden. Go plant flowers. Go plant shrubs and trees and trim them. Become a landscaper. He says, hey, take, the, take all the objects I've given you and make beautiful sounds out of them to make music. Become a musician. He says, take the fruit on the, the trees and the bushes and the flowers and put them together to make delicious food and spices. Become a chef. And that was God's command in the beginning, in the garden. I own this all. I'm giving it to you to steward, to manage, to my glory. We see this in a very tangible way in 1 Chronicles 27. It's describing King David's estate. King David was the one who would point forward to a greater king, King Jesus. But chapter 27 of 1 Chronicles describes David had a lot. He had financial advisors taking care of his resources. He had, he had agricultural managers that were overseeing the workers in his field. He had managers of his vineyards. And it describes all of this. And then in verse 31, it says this. All these were stewards. There's the word. All these were stewards of King David's property. He owned it, but he entrusted it to his people. And that's what God does. You know, every time that my wife and I on date night hire a babysitter to come watch our children, we experience stewardship because we take our children, ultimately belong to the Lord, and we, we hand them over for an evening, three, four hours, to a babysitter. We entrust our children into their care. That, that's stewardship. Any of you that maybe own a small business and that hire someone to be a general manager, to, to run your business while you're gone, that's, that's stewardship. Or if you've been hired as a manager, that's stewardship. But not only does he give, give it all, so he owns it all and then he gives it to be stewarded, but he gives it in different amounts. And this is one of the striking points in this parable. As you'll notice, 
the servants don't get the same number of talents. One gets five, one gets two, and the other gets one. Now, Jesus is telling this parable about talents, and a talent was a unit of money. So he's telling a parable about money, but it's a parable about something much greater. So this is not just a parable about sound monetary investment principles. And I just disappointed a bunch of you that are financial advisors, okay? Yes, it applies to that, but it's much bigger. He's using an example to tell a story, a parable about something much bigger. It's not just about money, it's about everything. Time, resources, talents, gifts, everything he's given us, right? Falls into the category of this parable. And they don't all get the same amount, which means this, God gives each one of us some slice of the garden. He gives each one of us some slice of his world. And some of you get a bigger slice than others. Some of you have been gifted and been given the talent on the level of being a CEO of a company or a CEO of a business. Others of you haven't been given that talent, that gift, that broad scope. Uh, LeBron James has been given incredible athletic talents to play the game of basketball at a really high level. I haven't. And it doesn't matter, growing up, how many camps I went to, how many um, AAU teams I played on, how many trainers I hired to groom my skills, I wasn't going to play in the NBA. Now, here, here's why this is so important. We live in a culture where there's a motto, and you, maybe you've heard this. Whatever you put your mind to, you can do. Whatever you put your mind to, you can do. Now, that sounds great. That sounds inspirational. It's cruel. It's incredibly cruel. If you tell a person who's 5'8", and not very coordinated. If you put your mind to becoming an NBA basketball player, you can be an NBA basketball player. That's not inspirational. That's cruel. That is cruel. Or if you tell, let's go right brain, left brain, right? I was an engineer. I'm left brain, big time, okay? Which is why I have so much appreciation for those that have a, the gift of art, okay? That's right brain, right? You tell someone who's left brain, which is analytical, methodical, right? Engineer, that... You tell someone who's left brain, hey, if you put your mind to it, you can be the greatest artist that's ever lived. That's not inspirational. That's cruel. That's a rejection of what Jesus is teaching here. That Jesus Christ gives talents, different talents, differing amounts, and he chooses what to entrust to who and what kind of talent to entrust to who. Mozart is a name that most of you would recognize, I hope. Mozart was one of the greatest musical composers arguably ever. Name you haven't probably heard is Anthony Soleri, okay? Soleri was also a composer at the same time as Mozart. He wrote, Soleri wrote great operas, had a successful career, but he became so intensely jealous of Mozart and his abilities. He looked at what Mozart produced, this amazing, extraordinary music, and, and, he, and he began asking God, 
you know, Solari was somewhat of a religious guy. Mozart wasn't. So you're asking God, can help me produce that kind of amazing music? And he never did. He, he remained what he would call modest talents. In the movie Amadeus, which, which tries to play out this relationship between Mozart and Solari, Solari gets to the point where he says this to God, from now on, we are enemies, you and I, because you will not enter me with all my need for you, because you scorn my attempts, you are unjust, unfair, unkind. And so Solari turned bitter against God. He turned bitter against God and he attempted to destroy Mozart. I mean, his level of envy rose to that amount. You say, now, was God being unfair, unkind to Solari? Well, if he was, he was unfair and unkind to a bunch of people because Mozart had gifts that are only a handful probably have in history, right? Or the movie, the recent movie that came out, I, Tanya. Y'all know what that is? I, Tanya, it's Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan, the story of two Olympic figure skaters back in the early 90s, right? And they're both training for the Olympics. They're two weeks away, two American skaters, both good. Tanya Harding was filled with jealousy, so she hires, I think it was her ex-husband, to take a whack at Nancy Kerrigan's knee on the way off the practice ice. And she did, but obviously didn't do a very good job because Kerrigan <laughs> skated in the Olympics. Right, but the, the same thing there. It, it's, there's an intense jealousy that can arise in envy in the soul when you don't grasp this concept that God is the one who gives talent, differing amounts according to his sovereignty. That God has given you gifts resources, a body with great intentionality and purpose. And the message is be satisfied with how he's made you, how he's gifted you. And quit comparing yourself to others. Quit comparing yourself to your neighbor's fruit and your neighbor's giftedness. That the measure of success is, is, are you being faithful with how God has gifted you and made you? Now, this is much easier said than done which is why the third point of this parable is absolutely critical. Why is stewardship foundational to life? God owns it all, he gives it all, and he gives it in differing amounts. And he chooses that. But third, we steward it all. I want you to notice how the first two servants steward the talents that the master gives them, right? One's given five, he trades and invests, and earns another five. One's given two, trades and invests, earns another two. And then listen to what, listen to the conversation between the servant and the master. It's identical for, for both of those first two servants. Look at verse 20. Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I made five talents more. You get the sense that this, this servant's like, hey, master, you gave me five. Look what I did for you. I made five more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. See, this servant is with great joy telling the master what he's done for him. Here's what's striking about this parable and what happens here. Isn't it striking that the joy of the first two servants doesn't come from what they gained for themselves. The joy of the first two servants comes from what they gain for their master. 
This is so counterintuitive. This is so countercultural. What it says is this, is that lasting joy, deep abiding happiness, does not come from seeking your own happiness, but seeking the joy and the happiness of others. That deep abiding joy comes from investing in God's kingdom and not your own which means investing in others and, and, and not yourself. That the, the deep joy and happiness as we're wired and created from, by God comes from seeking the happiness and the joy of others. And that's what we learn here. Now here's the question, how does this happen? <laughs> Where does the power come from to live a life where your joy and happiness is wrapped up in the joy and happiness of others. Where does the power come from to live such a life? And we see it in the actions and response of the third servant. One of the key questions that comes out of this parable is, why did the third servant bury the one talent he was given? Why did he bury it? Why didn't he trade and invest it? Why didn't he put it in the bank? Why did he bear it? Look, look, at his, look at the way that he addresses the master when the master returns. Verses 24 and 25. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. This is a bitter man. This is describing a, a bitter man who is feeling slighted by the fact that he only got one talent. Why didn't I get five like the other? Why didn't I get two like the other? I got one. You couldn't entrust to me anything more than one talent. He sees his master as a hard man. That word hard, it means harsh and demanding. It's the opposite of generous. You see, he saw the master as an ungenerous man, not a good man. And therefore, because he saw him as ungenerous and harsh and demanding and not good, he took the talent, stuck it in the ground, and went on with his life. There was no joy in serving that master because in his mind, that master was stingy, not generous, not good. The first two servants, just the opposite. They thought the master was incredibly generous and good. And so they served him with joy. See, the power to steward your time, your gifts, your resources, everything that God has given you is wrapped up in the character of God. That God is good. That God is generous. That at the heart of God is giving. God is a, a giving God. We see it in, in verse 29, right? He, he gives to the first two servants even more. When they bring back the talents to him, he says, I'm gonna give you more now. And then in verse 29, for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. God is a giver. Now, I say that to some of you. And depending on what's going on in your life, depending on what has happened in your life, you may say, like the third servant, I surely haven't seen it. 
God's not been given to me. My life's difficult. My life's hard. He has, he has taken away. That's because the supreme evidence of God's goodness and God's generosity is not in circumstantially what he brings into your life. It's in the fact that he gave up his own precious, prized possession, son, Jesus Christ, for you. That's the goodness of God. God gave up his, his prized possession, his one and only son, Jesus Christ. He's good. He's generous. And you have to ask the question, if he gave up his most prized possession for you, Jesus Christ, is there anything more that he has to do? God is good. Like Solari, you can be angry, frustrated with God for what he hasn't given you. Or angry and frustrated with God for what he has not restored to you. Maybe he's taking your health. Maybe he's taking your job. Maybe he's taking a loved one. I, there may be a, a, a lot of circumstantial evidence of what you don't have, but God has given you his own son, Jesus Christ. That's what makes him good. That's what makes him generous. And the power to steward everything that he's given you flows out of that. That God's given me his son and now everything I have is his. I, I grew up playing sports and I experienced two different kinds of coaches. I had a number of coaches that were, what I would say, in it for themselves. They were in it for their own agenda, their own glory. They really didn't seem to care much about me or the teammates or the players. It really did seem like it was all about them. They were the kind of coaches that didn't get hoisted up on players' shoulders after a big win. Those coaches were incredibly hard to go the extra mile for. When it felt like it was about them, they didn't care about you, they didn't, it was really hard to give effort to go the extra mile. But I had some coaches, some very specific coaches that I remember that were humble. You got the sense that they were doing this for, for you, for me, the teammates. It was about the players. They would have given the shirt off their back for you, for the players. They, uh, they, they were pouring themselves out and it was those kinds of coaches that were generous, that were giving, that were humble, that were in it for, for you. Those kind of coaches you wanted to go the extra mile for. I would have run through a brick wall for some of those coaches that I had. At the end of the game, after a big win, the first thing the players do is go hoist them up on their shoulders. Right, They're caught up in the joy and the honor of the coach. God has given everything up for you. He gave up his only son, Jesus Christ. He is generous. He is good. He is giving. And like those first two servants in this parable, when you grasp that and you grasp that God is that good, that he would sacrifice his one and only son for me, then in response, you say, God, here, everything you've given me is for you now. Everything is for your kingdom. I pour myself out for your joy and for your honor, and I get wrapped up in your joy and your honor and your kingdom. 
You see, the, the key to stewardship and the foundation of stewardship is understanding that God owns it all. And in his great generosity, he gives it all, most supremely, his son Jesus. And then he says to you and me, now would you steward it? Would you manage it for me? For my joy, my glory, my honor. And here, here's what happens. That when you grasp that at a heart level and you begin to steward your, your, your money, and we're gonna talk about it in the coming weeks. That word steward, in the New Testament specifically, what it's attached to is profound. When you begin to steward the gospel for God's purposes and you begin to steward uh, your gifts for God's purposes and you begin to steward relationships for God's purposes and you begin to steward your suffering for his purposes and your possessions and your money, there is a joy. It's what, it's what the master says here in the parable. Enter into the joy of your master. You will enter into a joy and a happiness because that's what you're designed for, is to steward everything for God, his kingdom, his purpose, and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we confess that so often our hearts are like that third servant. It's the first temptation in the garden from the evil one, that, that God, that you're stingy. Father, we confess that we, we complain a lot about what we don't have or maybe about what's happened in our past that still hurts. Maybe something you took away, a dear loved one or, 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 or something. Father, we confess that. But we confess that, that you are good because you gave us your son, Jesus. That you sacrificed him in our place. And as we grab hold of that greatest gift that you have given, would, would you foster in us stewardship, this desire to, to, to steward money and possessions and relationships and suffering and people and your gospel for your glory and would be, be wrapped up in the joy and the happiness that comes with entering into your service. Father, we pray that we would receive that well done, good and faithful servant. Not because we're perfect, but because you've changed our hearts and given us a desire to serve, desire to serve you and to recognize that you own everything that we have and it all belongs to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.